How do we really serve and honour people? I struggle reading the book of Revelation. John writes books on the book of Revelation. <laughs> and so honestly, I think we're going to be in for a real treat this afternoon. So why don't we show appreciation for John Hosier as he comes to speak to us. Thank you so much, John. Thanks so much, Pete, and uh, it's a real privilege to be with you today. I'm just going to explain to you the, the kind of way I'm going to go, because when Matt asked me to do this, first of all, it was going to be one of two afternoon seminars. So uh, the way I'm going to share this, in a sense, will have more of a sort of seminar feel, if I can put it like that. It's not going to be uh, a preach in the same way that uh, Steve served us so brilliantly this morning in the message that he brought to us. But uh, because we are talking in this session about lasting in ministry, I, I better tell you just very briefly how I've lasted. Uh, I have a very acute memory uh, of Neil Armstrong stepping off a space capsule onto the surface of the moon and saying that's uh, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. The reason that sticks in my memory so vividly is because at exactly that time, I was moving from training in Spurgeon's Baptist College in London to take on my first Baptist pastorate. Uh, that was one small step for me. It was not a giant leap for mankind, but uh, <laughs> that's the way it was. <laughs> I'm not surprised because that event took place almost 50 years ago with the majority of people on this planet not even having been born then, that so many people wonder if it ever really happened. And all the conspiracy theories there are around it. I know a, a guy in Bournemouth who tells me regularly that he has met the man in America who filmed the moon landings in the Arizona desert, and he's spoken to him about it. So you get these kind of theories and, that, that float around, but it stays vividly with me because that's just literally as I was starting my ministry in uh, a small Baptist church in Southampton. My sat-nav tells me exactly three and a half miles from this very building. And uh, it was there that I was baptized in the Holy Spirit, and that began to get me into a certain amount of Baptist difficulty. Uh, but uh, I moved to another Baptist church after uh, four years, and we went through a period not really of church restoration, but of charismatic renewal. But I certainly learned in that period something of what it meant to be uh, the body of Christ as the local church. From there, I, I actually moved back very near to here uh, and for three years lectured in a Bible college known as Moreland's Bible College. And then at the end of three years, having got to know Terry Virgo, Terry asked if I would go and join the church in Brighton. And we were there for some 24 years. And that was what I always now refer to as my main ministry. And it was there really at what was CCK, Christ the King in Brighton, now Emmanuel in Brighton, that really I learned everything and was very privileged to work alongside Terry Virgo uh, during those years. I retired uh, from uh, the church in Brighton, uh, getting on now for, what was it, it's nine, over nine years ago now, and responded to an invitation from Steve Honrain here to go and work with him for a year in the Jubilee Church in Cape Town. I refer to that as my gap year. Now, I have a, 
I have a granddaughter who's uh, on a gap year at the present time, and actually, strange enough, is back in, in Brighton and with the, the Brighton Church working there for a year in her gap year. My gap year came a bit late, uh, but uh, it came at the end of my full-time ministry, if I can use that term. Uh, but it was a great year in, in South Africa. It was very special to us for all sorts of reasons. I'm very grateful for Steve's friendship as well as for the invitation. And then when we came back from there, we moved to Bournemouth, also not too far away from here, only about half an hour uh, away from here, and I joined Citygate Church and was with Guy Miller. I went on the eldership there for six years in a voluntary uh, capacity. I came off something over a year ago from the eldership there, and then we began to feel it was actually the season of life to join our family. Now, when we moved down to Bournemouth, Matt, who leads, of course, the church in Paul, said, come and live near us, but don't join my church. Uh, I felt after seven years, he might be more forgiving, and so that's where we are now. All right, so. I'm still preaching, I'm still teaching this year. We have just celebrated our golden wedding, and I'm in the 50th year of ministry and preaching and teaching. Uh, so... <laughs> So I'm now being asked to preach end-of-life messages. <laughs> I, I'm going to read a few verses from Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verse, uh, let me pick it up at verse uh, 21. For me, uh, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Now, I am an expository preacher, but because this was a kind of seminar that I was putting together and was expecting to deliver, uh, I'm taking the liberty of ripping a phrase right out of context in this particular passage, which is not my normal style at all. In verse 25, Paul says, convinced of this. And I want to say to you, brothers and sisters, that uh, after just about 50 years in ministry, I think that you have to have some convictions if you're going to last. Uh, you've got to be convinced of some things. And so there are things that I have been convinced of during my years in ministry uh, and uh, things that uh, really remain with me into this season of life that I want to share with you. Uh, inevitably, there'll be a few points of crossover with Steve because we're on a parallel track and uh, also no doubt Rigby will get the fag in tonight because he, he's got to do the same thing again and see how much overlap there is there. I was actually in India a few years ago with my wife and we were ministering to some uh, leaders there from New Frontiers churches and uh, I was at this conference speaking. I was one of two main speakers. The other guy was an apologist really and uh, he spoke first but I was going to go through 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in, I think, a number of five sessions, I think, and that chapter has a lot to say about the resurrection of the body, and I was going to really major on that particular theme, and so this Indian apologist gets up, and he, he starts to speak, and he starts to talk all about the resurrection of the body. So I said to my wife, I said, oh, gosh, I said, he's absolutely got all my material that he's speaking about. This is when you know how blessed you are in having a good wife. 
she said to me, what are you going to do? <laughs> anyway, we went through on parallel tracks. Okay, so a number of things that uh, I think we need to be convinced of. I think we need to be convinced, first of all, that Jesus is Lord. Now, over the years, I think I've become more and more aware of the rapidity of political transition. We obviously know that in America, there can be transition as uh, regularly as every four years. Some people may hope that there's going to be transition uh, after four years. But even in our own country here in the UK, obviously, there can at times be some pretty rapid uh, transition politically. Uh, goodness knows how many prime ministers have come and gone in the course of my lifetime and in the course of my ministry. And sometimes they go quite quickly. I mean, who remembers David Cameron? You know, they, they just uh, are gone in the blink of an eye almost. And often when they go, they go in tears as well. That's one of the things I noticed. There is one exception for us, of course, in the UK, one exception that rises above all this political change, and that is the Queen, God bless her. I mean, she is hanging in there, uh, though even she must soon be gone. And I've said that to congregations previously, and there's been a kind of frozen silence, but be real, she's not immortal. She is going to go at some point. Uh, Jesus said, before Abraham was... I am. Jesus is the great I am. Before time began, he was there. When time ends, he will be there. We see it actually in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Jesus, being in very nature God. The word for being is an unusual Greek word. It speaks of Jesus in the form of God, in the essence of God. He was always that. He is that now, and he will always be that. He is always being in the essence and form of God. There's a wonderful verse in Revelation chapter 1, 18 that I've often pondered upon and sometimes preach. It's one of those verses that means so much to me. We all have got these verses. But speaking here in the book of Revelation, Jesus says, I am the living one. I was dead. I just live with the paradox of that. I mean, Jesus, the eternal one, the I am, I am the living one. I was dead. And only the cross explains that extraordinary paradox. Only we can understand that. And now look, I'm alive forever and ever. Every monarch, every dictator, every prime minister, every leader has no more than a few years. And they're gone. And I say so often they're gone with tears. The Bible says, what is your life? A mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. But Jesus... The I am always is. Go back to the Queen for a moment. I've got a huge admiration for the Queen. I mean, she's been Queen really most of my life. I was very, very young when she became uh, Queen of the United Kingdom. And I have a great respect for her in the sense that she's the only public person that will speak of the person of Jesus at Christmas. So I think we have respect for the Queen. I have respect for our democratic systems that we elect our members of parliament and through them our prime ministers. But there's one king who is above all kings, and he is the sovereign Lord over all things and all time. And Steve touched on that so, so brilliantly this morning. Why is it that this is happening? If God is sovereign, why is this happening? Friends, it's because God is sovereign that this is happening, and everything is going to work out according to his plan and will. 
the great I am, forever he will be, as the song says, the Alpha and the Omega. If you're going to be in ministry and last in ministry, you've got to be convinced of this, that Jesus is Lord, and that alters absolutely everything. Next thing I am and have been and hope you are convinced about is that God loves you. I'm convinced of this, God loves me. Now, I've always been very proud of my good health. Forty years uh, in, if you allow me to use the term, was spent by me in full-time ministry. Forty years. And in 40 years full-time, I only ever had two Sundays off for bad health. Uh, and so when I was 24 years in the church at Brighton, it was just one Sunday that I had a, for, for bad health. Uh, one of our elders, great pastoral elder, he had back trouble and spent a whole year on his lounge floor, flat on his back, doing his pastoral work from home via the phone. Even Terry Virgo took two, three months off because he had shingles. But John Hosier, he just went on <laughs> and on and on. And then uh, we moved to, to Bournemouth uh, somewhere about eight years ago. And a few months later, I was sitting across the table from a consultant, and he said to me, unfortunately, you have cancer. Now, I never thought I'd get cancer. I know that some people, and there are people in our churches that live with that fear all the time. They, they feel they're kind of almost destined to get cancer. I think sometimes people can fear it so much they bring it on themselves. Well, I never had that thought. I thought I'd never get cancer. And suddenly, out of the blue, after all these decades of brilliant health, I've got a, a doctor saying to me, unfortunately, you've got cancer. And so I had surgery seven years ago, um, and that surgery was obviously successful. Uh, I do believe in the resurrection of the body, but that surgery was, <laughs> was successful. But following, following diagnosis of uh, that cancer, I walked a lot and I prayed a lot, and I really wondered if I was going to die, and for two weeks, I really seriously thought I probably was going to die. I'm not going to go into the medical details, but uh, there was enough, I felt, evidence that I had secondary cancers. I, that's what I actually felt over a period of two weeks before I had an MRI scan. And so for two weeks, I was really facing the issue, was I going to die? And during that time, as I was walking and praying, Galatians 2.20 came to me very strongly. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And it was the personal note that came to me. God so loved the world, he gave his Son, the most famous verse in the Bible, and that launches our mission to the ends of the earth with the gospel. But the world is full of individuals and the Bible tells the individual believer, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. So the, the cross means this, it was my sin, my guilt, my condemnation. And when we respond to the gospel and when we believe on Christ for salvation, then we are persuaded that Christ took my sin. And however much God loves the world, he loves me. My sin, oh, the bliss of that glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. It's well, it is well with my soul. And Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and that is the love of God, magnificent, wonderful, glorious, beyond our understanding and comprehension. 
But when in my life I did at long last face a health crisis and thought probably I was going to die, I was then and remain now convinced of this, that Jesus loves me. And if you're going to last in ministry, it's got to be personal. You've got to believe that Jesus loves you. Next, I'm convinced of this, that the Bible is true. We're all very aware that Billy Graham died comparatively recently at the age of 99. Uh, He was only, of course, exceeded by George Beverly Shea, who died at the age of 105, his frontline singer, of course, during the years of his evangelistic rallies. In Billy Graham's amazing life, there is so many stories that are told, but here's one I am particularly fond of in his biography, which recorded that he once said, I went back and got my Bible and went out into the moonlight and I got to the stump of a tree and put my Bible on the stump. I knelt down and I said, oh God, I cannot prove certain things. I cannot answer some of the questions other people are raising, but I accept this book by faith as the word of God. And we all know that when Billy Graham preached and and when he declared, the Bible says, there was always tremendous authority and power as he used that expression. Of course, the historical arguments for the truth of the Bible are overwhelming. I know that in the world there's a common but ignorant opinion that the Bible has been changed and altered over the centuries of time. That is pure ignorance of our five and a half thousand manuscripts that are in our existence from ancient times and the ability that we have to compare those manuscripts and therefore we can be sure that the text that we have today is indeed utterly reliable. There's archaeology, of course, as we know, that backs what it says in the Bible. There's the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it's very difficult to look carefully at the resurrection of Jesus Christ without being convinced that the tomb was empty and Jesus was raised from the dead. All of this we know, but you need something more than historical proof as you read the Bible. You need revelation by the Holy Spirit, that as you read it, you know this is the Word of God, and the Bible speaks to you, and it tells you it's true by the way that it speaks. John Piper has written a brilliant book on this, A Peculiar Glory. Uh, All John Piper's books can take some working out, but it's worth working at. The Bible works, so we live by it. And because we live by it, we know it works, because it is true. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, And verse 10, uh, there's a scripture that, again, has been so important for me during the years of my ministry. In 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 10, uh, Paul says, Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. And that's been a passion in my ministry concerning the Word of God. It's why I didn't retire to a quiet life because I have that passion that I might supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, there are dangers in preaching, my friends, and many of you here are preachers, and you'll know that. I have a favorite saying from C.J. Mahaney many years ago. He said, most preachers get more encouragement walking from the lectern to the door on a Sunday than many people get in an entire lifetime. And I thought, wow. 
And then I thought, well, what I'd better do is walk very slowly from the lectern <laughs> to the door. But if you're a preacher, you'll know that's true. You can preach what you, you know is a pretty lousy message, but somebody's going to be saying, thank you. You really blessed me today. We get a lot of encouragement. And that can be one of the things that mixes up our motives. We want the encouragement. We want the applause. Whatever my mixed motives may be, and I don't know that any of us can deny that there may be some mixed motives, but the reason I preach and teach and work hard at it, and as the years have gone by, have worked harder at it, is to help supply what is lacking in your faith. And if I have any ability to explain to others the Bible so that they can understand it better, then that's what I care about, because you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. As Paul says in verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. We're going to last in ministry. Then we need to be convinced of this. The Bible is true. Next, I think we need to be convinced that the church is the hope for the world. Now, that's a statement which is hardly original to me. Many people have made that statement. It's also a statement that's been criticized uh, because people will say, well, surely it is Jesus who is the hope for the world. And of course, that is absolutely true. But it is the church that has the responsibility of preaching the message of Jesus. It is the church that has the responsibility of demonstrating the community of Jesus. And it's Jesus himself who said that what he will do is actually build his church. And so here we are, and we're meant to be a visible presence of Jesus in the world. We are the body of Christ. Now, if you're 50 years in ministry, let me tell you, you get some disappointments, and that's been referred to already today. We've heard a bit about that. One of the greatest disappointments, and I think in a way Steve was alluding to it, is people who leave you. People promise you everything in terms of how they're with you and how they are blessed by your ministry and how they're committed to you, and then they leave. And if you're a pastor, even though they always say it's nothing personal, it's always personal. You always feel it like that. The only thing I say to cheer pastors up is this, that for everybody that leaves you, somebody else will come discontented from another church and join you. So it just kind of, it balances itself out a bit. But it is disappointing, and if you're a pastor, you feel it. And then again, as Steve mentioned this morning, it's, it's leaders who fall. I mean, that grieves me, and I look back on some of the, the great men of God who I've learned from, and uh, then you see the wreckage and the destruction that comes. I always say this to leaders when I touch on the moral issues of leadership. Please hear me. And I've said this so often, and I'm saying it again because everything that I've heard this year proves it and proves it again. Guys, and I'm addressing the guys particularly, please understand that sexual temptation in ministry does not come so strongly in your 20s and 30s that that is when you fall. It comes in your 40s, 50s, and 60s, and that's when men fall. And I can tell you hardly anybody that I know that's been in leadership in their 20s and 30s who's fallen because of sexual immorality. But many in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, I could give you name after name after name. 
And be careful that if you think you're a younger person now and you're fighting some temptations, but you'll get over it. I tell you, that's not the truth. You look at the history of what's happened in the modern church, and it's more senior men that have fallen and made a wreckage of their ministry, and that's been so sad. And there are disappointments in the sense that I've never been in a church where we hoped we'd get to. So in Brighton, we'd hoped we'd get to 1,000 members, uh, but we never did while I was there. When Terry Virgo and I left, they got to 1,000 members, so that was obviously... <laughs> obviously the answer. I've prayed regularly for revival, but I've never seen revival. I've been disappointed in myself that I've not been a better pastor, a better preacher, and a better evangelist. But I can set all those disappointments aside and say with absolute conviction, there is no community like the church when it is the church. The church is one people redeemed by Christ. I remember years ago, I went to Bangalore. I've been in India for some time, a few weeks, and uh, my last stop was in Bangalore in southern India. And uh, it was kind of right at the end of this trip, and I just wanted to go home. Sue wasn't with me. I was tired. I was weary. I was hot. It was kind of India. It's always somewhat demanding. And uh, we were in a kind of upper room, and outside, it was an evening meeting, where all the smells, the sounds, the, the life, the vibrancy, the color that there is in India. And I'm with a Tamil congregation, and a lot of this Tamil congregation comprised very tiny women, really short, about four foot six, I would think. And these women worked on building sites, and they carried bricks to and forward every day, 12 hours a day. And they were quite a substantial part of this congregation. And then we had uh, an overhead projector, and we had the songs up, and I couldn't read a single letter of the songs. Uh, I couldn't understand a word of the language. I had nothing in common with these people. I couldn't understand their language. I couldn't sing their songs. I couldn't read their scripts. Their education was so different to mine. Their background was absolutely different to mine. Uh, Our common experience of life just wasn't a common experience of life. And I stood there and felt, oh dear. And suddenly I had a moment with God when God said to me, these are your people. And I realized in that moment that we were one people in Christ. And I can honestly say, in those moments, I didn't want to be anywhere else in the world. These were my people. And we are one people redeemed by Christ. We are a community of love and care. We're a place of refuge and a place of safety to help those in need. We have the ability within the church to serve one another. We have a vision and a purpose that will take us, will take this movement to the ends of the earth. And we're able to see the advance of God's rule and minister to the poor and the powerless. There's nothing like the church when she functions. She has the destiny of being the bride. She's what Jesus is building, what Jesus is doing, what Jesus is using, what Jesus is coming back for. And we live in such a scary world, the terrors of Syria and the Yemen, the threat from Russia, the goodness knows what with North Korea, and then the real rising challenge, which is China. And believe me, we haven't yet seen what's going to happen when America and China confront one another in the South China Sea. That's the real threat that faces us at the present time. And in the midst of this scary world, it is the church that is the hope for the world. And 50 years on, I honestly want to say, 
I wish, therefore, I could start all over again because I'm convinced of this, that the church is the hope for the world. And then next, I think we need to be convinced of this. Again, Steve said this, we must keep the main thing the main thing. John Piper began a series on Romans a number of years ago, and in his very first series on Romans, he said, his very first sermon in that series, he said this, I'm not as moved now as I used to be by the tyranny of the urgent and the need to respond to every trendy view that blows across the cultural sea in America. Well past midlife, I have deep confidence that the best way to be lastingly relevant is to stand on the rock-solid, durable old truths rather than just jumping from one pragmatic bandwagon to another. Well, I can tell you in 50 years, I've seen a lot of fashions, I've seen a lot of trends, I've seen a lot of bandwagons, and I've, to be honest, I've jumped on a few of them. But I've seen these things sweep the church. You remember Cell Church? Now, I, I want to say to you that I think the Cell Church movement's actually left a good legacy with us in, in a number of ways. But we kind of, at Brighton, we had a season where we went totally overboard on it. I mean, Cell Church, we weren't going to be a church with cells. We were a cell church. And uh, we, we got a guy in from Singapore who'd written books. He had diagrams like medical examinations to explain everything. And uh, uh, he went through these charts and these diagrams. And I say he was a guru. He came from a mega church in Singapore. And so he was doing it. We could do this. And so we took it all on board, and a couple of years later, I had the uh, opportunity to go to Singapore, and I went and attended his church, which indeed was a mega church, and I spoke to uh, a leader there and said, how's it going with your church, cell church development? No, he said, we scrapped all that, we're trying another thing now. And you, you realize that even for them, it was a, it was a passing trend. Uh, and uh, it's very easy to jump on these trends and think that they're the answer. I can remember one, tr one uh, sort of trend that we had very briefly with us in New Frontiers. I don't know if any of you here would remember this, but probably about 20 years ago now, 15, 20 years ago, I think we, we, there was a feeling around that our worship was too front-led. And so what we needed to do was actually have a band up there, but the band weren't going to lead, the congregation were going to lead. This is true body life. This is what we were founded on. Uh, we were going to have uh, churches which were body life. And so the band could pick up the tune, uh, but you know, the band didn't lead. The, the congregation would lead out in song, make the contributions, etc. It was all going to be a body life meeting. It didn't last very long. The reason was we had a lot of silent meetings. And uh, <laughs> you... You get these trends that sort of come into the church. Now, I risk really being misunderstood here. But my friends, good things can take us off the central thing. For example, spiritual gifts are good gifts of God. And believe me, I'm among those who fought for them. I believe with all my heart in prophecy. Uh, there was a remarkable prophet uh, in South Africa years ago. She was actually over here at the time. And she ministered to a group of us as New Frontiers uh, leaders. And she came to me. I'd never met her before. never seen her. She'd never seen me. And the first thing she said to me is, you're no longer going to run in your shoes. You're going to run in your socks. That didn't mean anything to anybody. It meant everything to me. My name is Hosier. She got my name. <laughs> I listened very carefully after that. I believe in miracles. I've seen some remarkable financial miracles. 
I remember one that sticks in my mind. Back in the Brighton Church, we wanted to buy a new building, uh, and we then developed it, but we needed £30,000 to complete the purchase, and we called a special prayer meeting. Uh, have you noticed that on the news, that if they ever refer to a tragedy and people pray, they always pray special prayers. I don't know what special prayers are, but, but we had a special prayer meeting. And uh, uh, this prayer meeting was to pray for, for £30,000, uh, so we could complete the sale, and the, the, the prayers gathered. I mean, friends, it wasn't a £30,000 prayer meeting. I mean, it really was the students, the single mothers, and everybody that didn't have anything. And uh, we kind of prayed, and then we took up the offering the next Sunday, and we got not one penny more, not one penny less, we got £30,000. I mean, we see the miracles happening. We've all seen miracles of healing. Whatever our problems may be with healing, we've all seen the miracles. But we can be so taken up with the good things that we neglect the central thing. In John 17, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And here in Philippians 3 and verse 10, where Paul says, I want to know Christ and to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. I think that's speaking of experiential knowledge of the life of Christ. And I am concerned that we don't become introspective, and it is all about my role, my gift, my destiny, my dreams, all of which are good things, but it can turn us into bless me Christians, and it can rob us of our passion for Christ. I think we must be convinced of this. Keep the main thing, the main thing. Next, I'm convinced that we should be up to date when the men were gathering to David, in 1 Chronicles chapter 12 and verse 32 from Issachar, there were men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. We must discern the times we're in and what we should do. That's affected our language. We don't say thee and thou anymore. But we can still use language, phrases, illustrations that are actually out of their sell-by date, as my wife tells me. It means if we're up to date that it will affect our music, our songs, our use of social media, the way that we do evangelism, even our buildings. We need to be careful that we're not addressing yesterday's issues rather than today's. You sense that Paul was already always up to date. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and from verse 20, he says to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews, to those under the law, I became like one under the law, to win those under the law, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. And so, so he goes on. Paul discerned the times. He knew what to do. And all of us here, I'm sure, are absolutely clear that we're not going to win the lost and build the church if we just depend on guitars and PowerPoints and modern signage and good coffee and shorter meetings. But it is important that we look and that we sound as though we belong to the 21st century, and that we know what to do, so that we don't put people off before we even begin. I sometimes wonder even if Sunday morning will always be the best time for us to gather. With all the social change that is taking place, we've got to understand the time that we're in and what we do. I'm convinced of this if we're going to last in ministry. But, and I want to link it to what I've just said, but, and Steve again did this so well this morning, but I'm convinced of this, 
we can't and must not compromise to our culture. I suppose the two biggest legal and moral challenges that have occurred during my 50 years in ministry have been abortion and gay marriage. I still want to say abortion is the much more significant issue because that's an issue of life and death. But I fear we've got used to it and it's kind of dropped into the background, whereas gay marriage is much more recent and kind of with us at the moment. And then there are the other challenges to come, gender identity. I mean, I gather Doctor Who is, is a, a lady now. Well, I suppose if you are called Doctor Who, you're going to have some sort of gender identity. But you, 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 that's, that's the thing that's facing us now. And of course, uh, end of life choices. It's another biggie for us. And I sometimes think that even our theology about the most important things is pressurized by political correctness. And people are against substitutionary atonement. I think more for politically correct reasons than for theological reasons. Now, sometimes we may not help ourselves. We can say what we are against rather than what we are for. We are for life. We are for children. We are for adoption. We are utterly for marriage and for faithfulness within marriage. But inevitably, our fors mean that sometimes there are things that don't stand up for us. But if our churches are under biblical authority, if we are convinced by the Bible, there we must stand and we cannot surrender to modern popular culture. Most people believe this now, so we better as well. We cannot do that. We must be convinced that we can't compromise to our culture, even when it's costly for us as it can be now if you don't bake the particular right sort of cake. It can be costly and can involve your whole business, as we know from recent history here in the UK. In our nation's history, believers have died preserving, translating, and passing on the Word of God to us. Daniel's three friends literally would not bow down to their culture. They never compromised. My friends, I'm convinced, nor can we if we're going to last effectively in ministry. Next, I'm convinced of this, that the Christian life is a battle. There's a handful of people here that know I've often quoted Terry Virgo on this. Many, many years ago, Terry Virgo was preaching a message on spiritual warfare, and he said, the Christian life is not like a battle, it is a battle. And I thought, that is a brilliant, succinct statement. And so I used it a lot, and I always gave credit to Terry. I said, Terry said this, the Christian life is not like a battle, it is a battle. But pass on a whole number of years, and Terry's preaching again, and preaching again on spiritual warfare. And during his sermon, he says, as John Hosier says, the Christian life is not like a battle, it is a battle. So I thought, well, praise God, he's got hold of that anyway. So... <laughs> But the Bible tells us so. The Bible tells us there are evil days. The Bible tells us take your stand against the devil's schemes. We read that we are to resist the devil. We're told the devil has gone down to you and is filled with fury. Even the fact that we pray demonstrates that there is a battle. And Christians and leaders, we have to fight all sorts of things and stand with others in the battle. For some, it's depression. Spurgeon suffered depression through his life. 
John Piper says that he gets so depressed when he's preached on a Sunday morning sometimes that he can't remember the names of his children on Monday morning. If John Piper feels like that, I always think I should be suicidal. But, you know, you get, you get people who are well-known, who've suffered great depression. People suffer accident, like Jody Erickson Tarda. People suffer loss. And I think of a family in our church in Brighton who had a beautiful little boy aged four. One Saturday had a terrible headache, next Saturday was dead in a London hospital. And you have to stand with people who fight that kind of loss. There's illness, and I have a friend at the moment who was a professional footballer and he's ruined his body and he's in constant agonizing pain. And people are in difficult circumstances. In our country at this time, often with housing, people face persecution, which is absolute in North Korea. People have financial reverses and it's no not their fault. People are misunderstood. And we know as leaders that can be so painful. There can be false accusation. And that is so unjust. And at my age and stage of life, the battle can be comfort because that's what you can begin to long for. I don't want to take this to the bottom of the tube, but the Christian life is a battle. So we need the Word of God. You need to preach and teach the Word of God to encourage us, to understand who we are in Christ to reassure us, to belong to the church, which is part of Christ's community to care. We need the prayers of others to help us. We need to pray ourselves for a breakthrough. We need to strengthen ourselves in God so we can stand in the battle, keep yourselves in the love of God. In the battles, there are victories as well as losses, and we're overcomers. Jesus says this is what overcomes the world, our faith. And you know the very famous verse in Romans chapter 8 and verse 33, where Paul says, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? And the spiritual answer seems to be, of course, nobody can. Let me tell you this, everybody and everything is bringing a charge against us. We're in a battle, but they can't make the charges stick because in verse 34, Christ who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. So nothing will ultimately separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. We must be convinced of this. The Christian life and Christian leadership is a battle, but we will overcome and we will win. And then nine and there are ten. I didn't tell you at the beginning or otherwise I'd have lost you. But number nine out of ten, I'm convinced of this, we have victory over death. Death is the last enemy and death is the last battle. I'm at a stage of life when a considerable number of people are dying who are younger than I am. That includes my own sister who two years ago died of cancer, four years younger than I am. And I've lost a number of friends just in the last couple of years. All have been younger than me. All have been taken by cancer prematurely. And in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, we read, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And you've got to be thrown back on that verse if you're a Christian leader again and again. I think of Richard, who was actually the father and father-in-law of a couple of guys here. I was a prayer partner with him for many years in the Brighton church. And a few years, a couple of years back, 
he passed on younger than me with cancer. Richard's life was Christ, such a servant of God, so practical in his serving, followed Christ, loved Christ, was faithful to Christ, and too early he's gone. But note well what it says here, to live as Christ, to die is gain, not if you have a dull view of heaven. And let me tell you, for decades, I have fought against a dull view of heaven. My wife said to me some years ago, why do you preach so much about death? And I said, because it's the only thing I'm absolutely certain the congregation are going to do. I want to suggest it's not enough to say we have eternal life, RIP. I don't think that sounds very exciting. We need to actually excite people with the truth of what happens beyond death, what's involved, and it's glorious. Death is gain. Then Paul is able to go on and say, it's better by far to be with Christ. For Richard's wife and family a couple of years back, there were tears. There was great loss, but not without hope. Because for Richard, it's not dull heaven, it's gain. It's better by far. And on this, we have to live by faith because we've not been through death. It's on the other side of the door. I have a picture that I've often used. I want you to imagine that you lived in a house in which uh, uh, there were a large number of rooms, and that's the only place you lived in the whole of your life. But from time to time, you change from one room to another. And you're aware that uh, at the back of the house, there is a door. And you sometimes look at that door and wonder what's on the other side of that door. But you move around this house. Somehow you get your meals provided. And some rooms are really comfortable. Others are okay. Some rooms are just a bit grotty to live in. But this is where you spend your whole life. And then one day, you find yourself being drawn towards that back door. And you're moving towards it with a mixture of fear and excitement. And suddenly, the back door opens. And you walk through. And for the first time ever, you see a blue sky, a shining sun. You see trees, trees, green fields, and lakes, and oceans, and everything is gain. Brothers and sisters, it's going to be like that for us, but it's on the other side of the door, so we have to live now by faith. And again, a verse that's meant so much to me in the context of such a long preaching and teaching ministry is 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 14. And again, you all know this verse where Paul says, if Christ has not been raised... Our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And over 50 years, I've weighed my ministry against that verse again and again, because if Christ has not been raised, my preaching has been useless. Every word I've spoken to churches has been a wasted breath. I've done nothing but mislead people for 50 years. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead and has pioneered through death to life, which is gain and better by far. We must be convinced, if we're going to last in ministry, that we have victory over death. And so lastly, we must be convinced of this. There's an end to this story. The Bible tells us about origins, purpose, morality, and about the end. In the beginning, God our purpose to live to the praise of his glory. The purpose we have as leaders to bring people to maturity so they might live to the praise of his glory. We have teaching on how we should live in the Bible. 
but we also have teaching that tells us there's an end to this story. And don't let the doctrine of the return of Christ be a forgotten doctrine in your churches. We can be so taken up with the restoration and renewal of the church that actually we forget to tell our people because we're frightened of the cranks, we don't understand the book of Revelation, that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return in majesty, power, and glory. I often speak of the return of Jesus Christ. In Genesis, God brings everything into existence. In the book of Revelation, God brings everything to a conclusion and will one day say, it is done. Now, none of us have all the details right about the end times. I've got most of them right, but none of us have got all of them right. But there will come a day when from the throne there will be a declaration when the king has returned and all of creation has been restored to perfection. And I believe that the universe is so big because it has to be big enough for people who are going to live forever, that we will forever explore and be excited by the infinite riches of Jesus Christ, which will be displayed through endless ages through a restored universe. And God says, I make everything new. Brothers and sisters, we must be convinced there is an end to this story. Father, I want to thank you that uh, you have been so gracious to me. As I stand here today, I'm again aware of the fact that I've been so fortunate to have a loving wife for 50 years and I've been granted the great privilege of teaching and preaching your word for almost 50 years. I pray, Father, that whether our ministries be short or long, that we will last faithfully to the very final day. I pray, Father, that we won't fall out, that we won't get distracted, that we won't get into sin and bring shame on our ministry and on our church. But, Father, that we will stand for the glory of God. We will stand for the majesty of Christ. We will stand to promote, preach, teach, and take this glorious gospel to the ends of the earth. I pray that out of this movement, hundreds, thousands of churches will indeed be planted with ministries that will stand. And, Father, that all glory and all praise will come to you. Hallelujah. Amen.